0: Thanks, I needed that. I was asked about the class's schedule. Next week, we won't meet. I'm going to be away. I'm going to be in Israel. I'm actually going to be hiking in the Galilee. I'll tell you about it at the end of class. So Matthew and I will meet the following week, which is March 2nd.
1: Third.
0: It's a leap year. Whatever it is. Thursday.
1: 3rd oh, uh, or
0: 3rd? okay. Yeah. Not next so, like Thursday, but the next. So that will be our last meeting in this series. Then I'm going to be starting a new class series the following week on the spring Jewish holidays. Uh, and. Um, I'll have a. I will have do not have the flyer with me. There may be some in the uh, lobby, and uh, I'll print up some more. And anyone is welcome to attend that class. Obviously, you you don't you know you don't have to be a member of the congregation. You're so welcome to come learn about the spring Jewish holidays, which is connected to our topic for today. Um, and so you'll get a little introduction as we compare both the daily and the weekly and the liturgical annual si- seasonal cycles of the Jewish and Christian year. We want to compare and contrast them today. The question about monasticism probably will work its way into this uh, conversation. Um, so I want to let
2: Matthew start. You want me to start? No, no, I can I can start, I suppose. Um, and we'll just be free-flowing. Um, so the, the cycles that I wanted to talk about are the as Jonathan said, the Christian annual cycle, and held within that there is a weekly cycle, and held within that a daily cycle of, of prayer and liturgical observance. And I printed out some little maps of the Christian liturgical They're cycle. Pretty. We can just sort of send them around, perhaps, maybe. They're in color. OK. So, um, so you can actually get a, a picture of it as a wheel of time and the way the wheel sort of moves or unfolds over the course of the Christian year. And there are four representations of the same thing on this. Uh, it's just different um, images expressing the same cycle. <clears throat> I'll
0: do my free up on that piece of paper. <laughs> I was
2: going to do that, and then when I thought better of it. <laughs> And one of the nice things you'll see on this, so three of them are just depicted as wheels, and the final one is a spiral. So you get a sense that the wheel is actually a spiral that keeps unfolding through time, like sort of corkscrew movement through time. Great. Um,
0: Hmm.
2: And maybe just a word about sacred time. Um, Most religious traditions, but particularly the Abrahamic family of religions, we live annual cycles of sacred time that are more or less the same year after year after year. Um, The Christian cycle of sacred time is itself really patterned on the life and ministry of Jesus. Whereas the Jewish cycle, and Jonathan will speak to this, it's patterned more on the life and experience of a people, of the Jewish people. Um, Whereas the Christian cycle actually focuses in on this one life. And part of the idea is that as Christians live through the cycle year after year, we're actually um, patterning the story, the life and story of Jesus into our own lives and our own stories. We're living that life again and again and again and patterning its sort of movements deeper and deeper into the soul each year. And at the same time, um, that story becomes a lens through which we can read and interpret our own stories and experiences. So it sort of goes both ways. Wow. Um, If you look at the map, does everyone have one? I'll just say a quick word about the cycle itself. It starts in late November. Uh, you can spot that on the ones that have months. And uh, the, the Christian year doesn't start January 1st. That's the secular year. Uh, the Christian year begins every year in late November uh, with, the, with the four weeks of Advent, which are the, the four weeks before the day of Christmas, uh, the day of Jesus' birth. Do. Is Advent
0: practiced among uh, practicing Christians of any denomination? Does Um, everybody do it?
2: Most mainline, most all mainline Christians observe the liturgical year. Um, Especially, of course, Roman Catholics, Orthodox, Anglicans, then Lutherans, um, most Methodists or Presbyterians, most mainline Christians. The more sort of severe Protestant sects often have lost the cycle of the Christian year. And they might loosely, you know, have Christmas on their calendar and Easter on their calendar and not much more. And so the whole sort of spiral of sacred time kind of has fallen away. Okay. But for most Christians, this is the rhythm. Um, and each season um, sort of reflects a movement in time and a movement in in the individual soul. Um each one has a sort of different intention. So you'll see there are two purple seasons, Advent and Lent. Those are both sort of the introspective or uh, preparatory seasons for the Central Christian Mysteries. Um, And I'll I'll say a little bit more about that. But you'll see they're both purple, and then you see two chunks of green time. That's what's called ordinary time, and it's, it's sort of, outside of the two major cycles and then within this circle there are two cycles and you see it on the the circle in the bottom left corner you see there's a sort of smaller purple white green wedge of the pie at the top and it says Christmas cycle and then the larger chunk of the pie the Pac-Man chunk of the pie says Easter cycle. So those two cycles are held within the larger cycle, the sort of incarnational Christmas cycle, and then the Paschal or Easter cycle, and each of them have a period of preparation, the first Advent, the four Sundays before Christmas, and that's a season that sort of plays with time in an interesting way. It looks backwards to the birth of, of, of Jesus um, in history, and then it looks forward to what Christianity imagines as the sort of eschatological fulfillment of time, the second coming of Christ uh, at the end of time. And then the individual believer sort of stands in the in-between time, preparing for the birth of Christ in history, looking forward to the fulfillment of all time. And uh, the tradition talks about uh, the, the two comings of Christ. There's the one in history, the one in fullness at the end of time, and then the third one is hidden, and that's the coming of Christ within each individual. And so it's sort of a season where, um, it's sort of the opposite of spring cleaning, it's the sort of inner winter cleaning, where you sort of clean out um, your inner life to make room for the birth of Christ within the individual believer, which is leading to the celebration of Christmas um, and the birth. Uh, so so what are the practices of Advent? Um, Advent practices... If you're doing it as a spiritual practice. Right, if you're observing it that way. Um, let me think how it's shaped. So there's a, a lighting of candles, Advent candles. One is lit, and lit lighted each Sunday leading up to Advent. And it's like Lent, it's a sort of introspective season. So it's a time for, um, which goes with the the actual season of winter. Winter is sort of this inward time where outer activity starts kind of winding down and and life sort of focuses inward. So it's a time for more intentional um, prayer, uh, more intentional introspection uh, in preparation. It's also the time, uh, in the Christian cycle, you would often make a, a confession to your, your clergy. In some traditions, it's uh, all throughout the year you do this, but it's usually done at least twice a year, once during Advent in preparation for the mysteries of Christmas, once in Lent in preparation for the mysteries of Easter. And so it's a sort of, you know, you make an accounting of, of your sins, your shortcomings, the areas in your life that need work, and you would take that to a confessor. Um, to prepare yourself to enter more fully into these these sacred points in the year. Um, so then Christmas comes, and there's a little white slice there called Christmas or Christmas Tide, and that leads up to the feast of the Epiphany, which is, according to tradition, when three wise men from the east came and recognized. Um, recognize this infant as, as special. Uh, and then that opens a season, the, the season of Epiphany, it comes from the same word for light, like um, photon, uh, photo. Uh, and it's a season of showings or manifestations of the nature of Jesus. So there are four main uh, stories that are recounted in this season of Epiphany. One, the coming of wise men from the East, Recognize the baby, to uh, Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Um, actually, before that one, the second one is the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, then, and the descent of a dove and a voice that says, this is my beloved. Um, the miracle of water into wine. And the fourth observance, let's see. <clears throat> Well those are the three principal ones I guess. And do three. they happen on Sundays? Is that So they're they're observed on, the Feast of the Epiphany itself doesn't happen on a Sunday. It it moves through the year so it happens usually in the week. It sometimes might fall on a Sunday. But it oh, initiates this it the season. Is it the 8th day
0: after Christmas? Is that the Feast of the Circumcision? Yes.
2: yes. So ah, so okay. hold on. Let me think a minute. No, it's not. It's not. No. That's the Feast of of the Holy Name, Feast of the Circumcision, which is always 8 days after. So these, okay. these feasts, uh, because Christmas is a locked date, it's always the 25th, but the 25th isn't always a Sunday. All the other feasts shift in relation to Christmas. And I well, the oh, And the transfiguration is the final one. So the, the story of the transfiguration is the story of Jesus going up on Mount Tabor with uh, three of his close disciples, and he is transfigured like Moses. Uh, into light. It says his face sh- uh, shone with light, his clothes became dazzling white, and uh, on his right and his left, the disciples saw the prophets Moses and Elijah hanging out with him. They were talking. And you see the three of them sort of chatting together. And That's like the end of Star Wars. Yeah uh the right. empire yeah 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 you got yoda and anakin yeah. and yeah. obi-wan appearing the there I went right up
3: that mountain i, I must have missed it, <laughs> <You> missed
4: it. <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: those, so those are the four showings or epiphanies of, of of jesus that are celebrated in that season okay so since you're
0: celebrating different uh, uh uh, central moments of Jesus's life, right? Disclosures of his nature, identity. So that would be the way you're saying of that you're living in the liturgical year. You're 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 basically recounting the highlights of Jesus's right. life. Right. Right. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. The sort of key markers in the unfolding of his life. Anne has a question. Anne,
5: is there any Western Christian sect that Believes
2: that Jesus was born on January sixth. Um, in th- I don't know about Western Christians. The Orthodox Church, I want to say they observe the feast of of Christmas that would be in January. What Eastern Orthodox? Eastern Orthodox. So Russian, Greek, Coptic Orthodox Christians. Can you Their take a calendar. tiny digression and say why though there are two different dates in the Christian right. world? Countless. So so there's the the era of what's thought of as the undivided church, the first thousand years of Christian history when the church was more or less, became more or less a unified whole and um, over time it developed into uh, a a sort of eastern branch where Greek predominated in the liturgy in the culture and a western branch where Latin was the predominant language of worship. and they drifted more and more apart, in 1054 there was an official schism where they sort of excommunicated each other, and part of that was because of the western churches, the, the growing power being given to the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, who up until this point had more or less been seen as the first among equals, an important figurehead um, in succession of St. Peter, Bishop of Rome. Mm-hmm. but decisions couldn't be made in the life of the church that altered doctrine or, um, well, that doctrine, dogma, without an ecumenical council being called, where bishops from all around the world came together in council. Um, But the Bishop of Rome uh, actually approved an alteration in the primary Christian creed, the Nicene Creed. And there's a line that says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, God the Father, uh, and from the Son, from Jesus. These three little words, and from, or four, whatever it is, and from the Son, um, were added into the Western Creed. They're not said in the Eastern Church. The Eastern Church says, We never called a council to alter the creed. The creed can't be changed, and the Western church says, well, sure, we can do it on the authority of the Bishop of Rome. And so this... Oh, he gewalt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, That's the big deal right. So this was, you know, this tiny little thing. And of course it had been building, you know, tensions between the two churches building, but this was like the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, But a lot of it had to do with the question of, the authority or supremacy of the Bishop of Rome. And the Eastern Church rejected that. Um, and, and each so claimed each each side claimed to be the one true
0: church. Well did you read how Pope Francis just met with the head of the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church Kryllis in Cuba? Uh, in Russian, Cuba. Russian with it on. The Russian Orthodox That's the first meeting between these two church leaders since 1054. Right. Wow. right go Francis but I mean and and to make it even more interesting Raul Castro was the one who negotiated Organized the uh, the meeting I think because of Russia Cuba's traditional uh, ties with Russia I think that was like the. but anyway huh that was amazing okay so that's right. why they have different calendars
2: well well, yeah, different reasons. The shift between the Julian and the Gregorian calendars, and what right. holidays are locked in based on the lunar or the solar cycles, and right. you know, different traditions right. develop. So the calendars are slightly off center from each other in the and Eastern I've, and Western. One churches. more question: What is the? What are the twelve
0: days of Christmas?
2: Uh, the twelve days of Christmas are the the twelve days following the feast day of Christmas itself, uh, leading up to. Imagine, no. Leading up to the Epiphany. Oh, on the 12th. Right. Okay, right. okay.
0: So, so if you're celebrating the 12 days of Christmas, then you are reliving Jesus's birth, and circumcision, <clears throat> and um, Epiphany, his, right, his in naming,
2: his, his recognition by these wise men, by a, a woman named Anna, who's a prophet who lived in the temple. The story mm-hmm. goes. And who so that's the, the first child. 12 days, and then you go on to his baptism. Right. Yeah. During the season of Epiphany, the baptism, um, the well, the first miracle of water into wine, the baptism, mm-hmm. uh, what else did I say? You said the, the transfiguration. The transfiguration. transfiguration, transfiguration right. and, uh, and the magi is the first one. The magi is the first right. one on the 12th day. Right. OK,
0: OK, and, and that this, makes
2: sense. And this What's I, the name of the, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, December well, it's 12 days 20, after February. the 26th, sixth? the 8th? The 6th? It's always the 6th, right. Is it? Yes. Yeah. I don't know. So is because Is that a it? No, six, it's intentionally. 6, 7, 8, 9, 30, one, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Oh, right, right. And so the churches, right, it's, it has to do with the calendar shifting and where things locked in, but um, what becomes the Feast of the Epiphany in the Western calendar becomes, I think, the Feast of Christmas. And this is when people traditionally take down their Christmas tree. The Feast of the Epiphany sort of marks the closing of Christmastide. The other day, some people leave it longer until the Feast of, um, of, can- the, feast of the Presentation, which is when Jesus is presented in the temple uh, 40 days after. It's also the Feast of the Purification of the Virgin Mary, so 40 days after after childbirth, a woman would go to the temple for the purification rites. This is from the Torah. From the Torah, This is a biblical law. Right. Um, And so that, the Feast of the Presentation or the Feast of Candlemas, are the two two alternative times when you take your Christmas decorations down. Most people do it on Epiphany. Some stretch it out to Candlemas. But Candlemas sort of marks the end of that. Uh, It's the sort of final feast of the incarnation. I find it so ironic
0: that Christians who abandoned these um, practices, right. which was what? The eighth day is circumcision. And then if you follow the, the laws of purity in the Jewish tradition, the 40 days is right. when a woman would purify herself after the birth of a son. Um, and, and your firstborn was and, presented at the temple as an offering to God. Which we still do. We call it the Pidyon it HaBen. It's still a Jewish tradition. Um, uh, it's, it's just ironic that we're marking all these steps of this little Jewish baby. Yeah, and clearly. It's not Jewish. <laughs> but, but that Christians don't follow those in their personal life. Right, right. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah of course. I, I find that just kind of, you know, right. <laughs> okay. Christians are to pattern, though, in a, different, in a
6: more a, a mystical
5: way.
0: So there's a mystical pattern right. attached to it, but not an actual, right. pr- an actual physical
2: practice. Right. Mm-hmm.
5: I know this is really going off,
2: but can you say something about Anna, who lived in the temple? Okay. Yeah, she's just she's this wonderful. Um, so, on the feast of the presentation, when the the child Jesus is taken by his parents into the temple, um, it's said that they gave a, an offering of of turtle doves, of you know, pigeons, because they couldn't afford the right. lamb. It
0: says in Leviticus that if you can't afford a lamb for the offering, you can. Bring a bird, right. and that's so that no one, despite inability to what, uh, to pay, everyone could still make an offering at the temple. This is all
2: straight out of Leviticus. Right. So this marks Jesus' parents as poor, right? You know? um, and the story goes, they come, they bring this, and there's a woman that. You know, and these people may be fictive, you know, are they historical figures or not? But it says there was a prophet named Anna who lived in the temple and didn't leave, and she stayed there fasting and praying night and day. So this elderly woman recognized as a prophet who lived in the temple compound. Um, and then there's another elderly man named Simeon, who also is closely connected to the temple. And... um and both of them recognize the light, the specialness in this child. And Anna speaks a prophecy over him that this child will be the cause of the rising and falling of nations. And, you know, something, I, I'd have to look at the actual words. But
5: and is that the only time we see
2: her? That's the only time we see her. Um, in, in my imagination, so the scriptures, the next time Jesus is recorded going to the temple, he's 12. She's mentioned, she's 86, she was married for seven years, and then was widowed, and from that time on, lived in the temple. Um,
3: she was homeless?
2: Well, essentially, yeah. Um, so I always like to imagine that when he goes back as, as a 12-year-old boy, she's, she's there. <laughs> she's, oh, that's nice. You know, she's
0: in her 90s now. But. So again, let me make the connections for you about women prophets. There are numerous ones, well, numerous, there's at least a handful of them throughout the books of, um, well, Miriam is the first, Deborah is the next in the Book of Judges. And Deborah, of course, camps at the base of Mount Tabor, where Jesus goes up for the transfiguration. But then in the Book of Samuel and Kings, there are frequent mentions of wise women and women prophetesses who speak speak in the name of God. So this was a paradigm that existed in the Torah. I'm guessing that Hannah, Anna, Mm -hmm. is based on the Hannah who in the book of Samuel, who goes to the temple mm-hmm. to pray for a son. Yes. Pray. Pray. And Eli, the high priest, sees her and says, what's wrong with you, woman? Are you drunk? Because mm-hmm. she's praying with such fervor. And uh, she says, no, I'm praying for a son. And he comes to his senses and he says, oh, well, come, then you will have a son. Come back in a year. But she says, if I have a son, I'll dedicate him to the service of God. Oh, is that and his son, so her son is Samuel. And Is
1: she,
0: that where the ritual comes from? No, no, it it already, comes, it no that, comes, that comes from elsewhere in Leviticus. But she dedicates the life of Samuel to the sanctuary. And he grows up there. Uh, and Samuel becomes, along with Moses and Elijah, basically the, one of the three luminary prophets of, of the Bible. So um, <laughs> it's you this time. <laughs>
4: It was me last time. Same
0: time. So my my working hypothesis is that because these were Jews, because the Chris, early Christians were not Christians, right? They were Jews, who were who were who were telling a story about Jesus as their as their savior, right? As their Messiah. But they're Jews, so they pattern all of the stories on on uh, motifs that are already present in the Jewish tradition. Right. So, so, so if you hear Hannah, which is Anna, you hear Hannah, you hear the story of Hannah praying fervently and then dedicating her son to a life
2: of service to God. And so, Hannah, in scripture, she sings a song when she finds that she is with child. If she utters this
0: amazing prayer, which is, our, which is the Haftorah portion, the prophetic portion we chant
2: on Rosh Hashanah and that song is reflected very closely in the song Mary sings in the gospel of Luke when she's told that she will have a child she sings the song my like, heart exults right right my soul proclaims the greatness of the lord and it um, you know line by line it's it's clearly it's not word by word a copy but it's pretty obvious that her song is modeled on Hannah's song right so as in the transfiguration when jesus appears with Moses
0: and Elijah on either side. In Mary's song, you hear every echo of Samuel. Uh, everything about the this narrative that develops about the life of Jesus. Uh, there's no reason to think that these stories are factual, but that doesn't make them... I'm not saying they're they're, uh, they're they're midrash. They're midrash. That's the right word. Midrash is, if you don't know, is the Jewish word for interpretations of the sacred story, takeoffs on, uh, expansions upon. So uh, that's important to keep in mind. Um,
2: Barbara and Jay.
6: Matthew also, the advent maybe parallels the whole Jewish word that yearning is in the darkness. Know, where is God? The yearning for the light, you know, um, hoping for the Messiah, and there's this mm-hmm. darkness, and it's just holding, you know, outstretched arms. Like, where is this light?
2: Right. And each then, each it's season. God,
6: God is with us, and that's the birth of Christ. Mm-hmm. Each
2: season has a different theme or or sort of feeling tone. And Advent is a se- season of ex expectation, ex- expectancy, um, waiting, mm-hmm. hope, yearning. That's sort of the Flavor of that season. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about a minute for the name Emmanuel. Uh, do you mind? So, or, or, go ahead. Sure, sure. It's, it's a name that's traditionally given to Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, Emmanuel, which means God with us.
0: God is with us. Emmanuel. And that is a take on what God says over and over to Moses at the burning bush. Ehyeh Imach, I will be with you. And that is, uh, so when G- Moses says, what's your name? And God says, I will be. God adds, I will be with, with you. Me. And so that is one of the names of God. So Immanuel is one of the traditional names of God, which, is that, which says, I am with you. And that becomes a name for Jesus, because Jesus is the manifestation of God in Christian thought that is with us. Right, in human life. Jay. I was just wondering, you keep-
3: the three wise men from the Far East, how they fit into the biggest story in the sense of their significance perhaps, or where from the Far East, or were they simply observers, or or was there some... some So, uh,
2: yeah, yeah, so again, they're they're probably um, (coughs) Midrashic characters. Which um, appear in which gospel? They appear in Matthew's gospel, only in Matthew's gospel, and... They're described as, as as magi, which some scholars think uh, could be a reference to Zoroastrian priests from Persia. Sometimes that word was given to um, the priestly caste within Zoroastrianism. Um, so Zoroastrianism, unlike today, would have still been alive and well at that time. Um, so they could be imagined as sort of Zoroastrian priests, astrologers. The story is they follow a star that leads them to the place of the child's birth. Um, and it sort of shows, it sets the tone in Matthew's Gospel that the light within this child is for Gentiles as well as Jews. That's sort of the setup, you know, it's sort of framing it that, that he's recognized by these pagans, by these Gentiles, by these non-Jews um, from the onset. But so, this
3: Persia, is, it, is it today's Iran? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but again, but again who, who knows who they are, if they're literal people of history, if they're, you know, mm-hmm. sort of, Symbolic oh, we should remember that astrology
0: <laughs> was the cosmic science of the time. Everybody accepted s- astrological signs. The word, as some of us know, Mazaltov means good planet or constellation. Um, Simintov a- well, is good, good stars. Simintov and Mazaltov is is. Um, Simen constellation, a good constellation. Mazel tov, Mazels are the seven planets, the mazelot. Oh. Uh, so it's like saying, you're lucky stars. These are artifacts of a time when understanding the cycles of the heavens for, for everybody, for the deepest thinkers was uh, as, uh, and it is, still is today for some people, um, but our scientific revolution has overtaken it uh, in most part, uh, was as above, so below. So having a star that the three wise men follow confirms on another, on another level of the understanding of cosmos at the time. of You know, the laws of the cosmos points towards the baby. Does that make sense? Yes.
2: And, and Matthew's, Matthew's Gospel is very intentionally sort of depicting Jesus in this midrashic way as the new Moses. And so King Herod... Um, the story goes, the wise men, along the way, bump into King Herod, who says, Oh, so this child is going to be a king. I'd like to go and pay homage to so him. where and of is he? he? Yeah, where is he? And he says, you know, <laughs> let me know when you find him. Because he, he he feels threatened as, you know, the the political leader. Um, so the wise men, in a dream, they, they're told, you know, don't go back and tell Herod. He wants to kill the baby. And so they leave by another road. Um, so Herod, in his rage, he puts Out a decree that all infants under all male infants under the age of two be slaughtered in, in the area. And so, does that remind you of anything? Right, so this is this is it's like the Moses. Passover story, yeah. right? So, so then the Holy Family, um, Mary, Joseph, and the infant <laughs> Jesus, they oh, hold on, hold on. What, what did you say? He said it's their fallback plan, all
6: the baby boys. right? Right, That's <laughs> what, <laughs> right, right. Tyrants
2: do
0: that all the time, but the point again is that. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew wants to set Jesus up as the next Moses. Right. So it repeats the
1: story.
0: It repeats the story. It repeats the
2: motif. That's right. Right. So so then Mary, Joseph, Jesus, they flee as refugees into Egypt, and they wait out their time there until Herod dies so that they can return safely. When does Moses return safely? When he leaves Egypt, he hears that the Pharaoh had died, Mm -hmm. and then he goes back. Yeah. So um, the Christian year, now again, this story, we may not be in the realm of historical narrative, the slaughter of the innocents. It's probably an intentional echo of the earlier narrative. But the Christian but year... But don't put it past Herod anyway. Right, right. <laughs> Herod He's worse. was very cruel, he certainly could have slaughtered Joe these... Joe Stalin. Um, these, these, so this is commemorated in the Christian year as the feast of um, the holy innocents of Bethlehem. So Holy Innocence is commemorated annually in the Christian year. And it comes just after, um, just after Christmas. So there's, let me think. Christmas, there's the Feast of <coughs> St. John, then there's the Slaughter of the Holy Innocence of Bethlehem, I think. Um, so it sort of sets, if, when you're observing the full drama of the Christian year, you don't get this sort of bright, shiny Christmas you actually get it framed within the context of this horror story. Let me make an analogy. Uh, We'll
0: talk more about the Jewish year soon, but um, when you only celebrate Christmas, it's the birth of a baby. When you only celebrate Passover, it's we were slaves, now we're free. But as you follow the whole liturgical year, you actually walk through the life of Jesus in Christian, and you walk through the life of the Jewish people from slavery to freedom, and then you continue mm-hmm. all the way around the rest of the year. So it's, uh, it's, it's really right. similar. If you're not aware of the, as I've taught m- my congregation over the years, if you're not aware that there's an entire beautiful thing, Science. dance of time going on here, then what all you have are these little
2: bubbles of time that are like snapshots um, and I wanted to say that you only get the bright shining moments, you know, if you if right. you're, if, as, as churches joke about C and E Christians, Christmas and Easter Christians, you don't get the sort of gritty underbelly of the liturgical year. You don't get the Holy Family fleeing as refugees into a foreign land. You don't get the slaughter of these these innocent children. Um, so, yeah, following the whole cycle is pretty crucial. Did he carry out the slaughter? I didn't That's the story, yes, yes. Herod. In, in, how, in, we don't know how widespread it was? It was, it was um, the town of Bethlehem, is the story. Um, it, we have no, he- no historical historic record note. of this. It's, ah. it's an echo
0: of Pharaoh saying, throw every baby boy into the Nile.
2: I hear the echo, but right. I wondered. Is we have no historical, historical record. It's record not corroborated of. in any other historical records. We so know how that, many of
0: his wives he killed, but we don't know much else. <laughs> right,
2: right.
3: Well, we're waiting for Donald Trump to. <laughs> oh, okay.
0: Mar- Take Mar- Mar- deep Mar- breath, yeah. everyone. We're ta- not talking about that now. Right.
4: <laughs> I was wondering about Bethlehem. What's the reason for. Uh, right, right. So, Bethlehem, not right,
2: right, right. Um, it's different in different Gospels. Bethlehem isn't in. Let me see if I can get the, my Gospels straight here. The story of the birth in Bethlehem happens in Matthew's Gospel. No, there's no birth in Mark. No. It's in, uh, Bethlehem is in Matthew's Gospel, and Luke's Gospel just has them at home in Nazareth, it would seem. Um, so there's a tradition that Jesus was born in Nazareth, and that's why you get these words uh, um, quoted like, what good can come out of Nazareth is one of the things said about him. Then there's another tradition, and it's Matthew attempting to fulfill prophecy um, that links um, the idea that that the Messiah will come will be. Do you, do you know the actual quote? Uh, yeah. No, but I know that King David was born
0: in Bethlehem, right? Yes. And right. is from the tribe of Judah, which and Bethlehem was at the center of tribe of Judah. So it's an intentional Judah.
2: linking of Jesus to the only the way. Of David. Remember,
0: the only way for Jews that Jesus can be the Messiah. The anointed one is if he's descended from From the stock of King David. So it's critical that the link is also made to King David's ancestry so that he can be an anointed
2: one. And and Matthew's gospel, it traces Jesus' genealogy um, back through David. Um, So it's really trying to frame things within a Jewish context. In Luke's gospel, it actually traces his ancestry back to Adam, so it's actually framing him within a sort of universal context. And the, the thought is that Luke was writing more to a Gentile Christian audience, Matthew more to a Jewish Christian audience. So they have different, you know, yeah, wow. intentions there. Yeah, Joya.
1: It's interesting that at, at this moment we can also look at, this, at the dreams. And dreams are so inward. And yet they are so also, for the group, uh, significant. Because when Joseph, he has dreams all the while. Joseph's a dreamer. People think he's nothing, but it's very wrong of them to think that of Joseph.
2: Because this is our our our, jo- our Hebrew Bible Joseph or our New Testament Joseph. Well, oh, oh, both. Both, both are dreamers, because Joseph, right? Because dreamer, again, there's an intentional. The Joseph yeah.
1: of the New Testament is a dreamer. Yeah, Exactly, right. and and saves everything because of it. So when Jesus, uh, when uh, Joseph gets the dream, for example, that says you can marry Miriam, he does. When he gets the dream that says, ah. Something bad is going to happen. You must go to Egypt, right. by Egypt, because out of Egypt right. will come the Messiah. So they go to Egypt, and there's a whole thing, at least in my tradition, of the flight of the Holy Family to Egypt that is really? very difficult. And in my town, my grandmother used to say, do you see that finger that's not on the on the virgin birth? It's because a Roman soldier dared to touch her, <laughs> and that finger um, was... Uh, Wounded, in a way, from the Roman soldier mm-hmm. on her way Into to, Egypt. on the donkey with Joseph and the baby in her arms to Egypt, so that when he gets the dream that says Herod is dead, they all gather together and go back home.
2: And what's the story, uh, what, was, what's yeah. the quote about a, 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 a loud wailing, lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children? Oh, that's in Jeremiah. So Matthew quotes that, and he says the slaughter of the innocents was to fulfill this prophecy, Rachel, Rachel weeping, for, weeping her children, for her children, and that's the the holy innocents that are slaughtered.
0: Wow! And of course, again, as midrash, it makes sense that Joseph is that Jesus' father is named Joseph, the after Joseph the Dreamer, who saves the world. Right? Remember Joseph in Genesis. Uh, he because of his dreams. Uh, and his inability to interpret dreams, he literally saves the world in that story because Egypt is the breadbasket of the world and he predicts the famine based on Pharaoh's dreams so that everyone comes to Egypt, including his 11 brothers, in order to be sustained during the famine. So Joseph is an amazing figure. And uh, uh, again, if... If you're either a Jew in the first century or a Jew in the 21st century who lives in these stories, then the connections are all like um, uh, headlines. <coughs> if you understand what I'm saying?
2: Yeah. Kara. And then we'll jump back into the cycle yeah, i, I think that this little
5: thought feels important I, As an outsider, the gospel truth, the phrase, the gospel truth, has always meant to me it's one truth again, because it's in the Bible, but and I've always sort of known that the that the disciples write differently, but the the gospel truth is huge. The, the, it's not it's 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 not one truth. It it encompasses every every variability
2: of story. Yeah, the story of Jesus is sort of refracted and interpreted in all these amazing different sort of colorful ways in each account and they they're not eyewitness accounts. They're they're written sometime after the fact for different communities that are living in different circumstances uh, and that are theologizing the Jesus tradition in different ways. Um, <coughs> We've said that. To right.
5: me, it's a possible explanation of why there are different stories for the same thing that happens in our in, in the Torah. In the Torah. In, the Torah mm-hmm. in the Torah, because you can see the movement of time, and you can see it being written for different different populations. Right. That's,
0: That's right. Go. So, for both for for contemporary Christians and Jews who are attached. to, and interested in living our traditions, but um, understand that this is not an historical record, we then have to liberate ourselves to enter the stories in this more free-flowing way and say, as I say to the seventh graders, what's the truth in these stories, not are these stories true? And I think
2: that's key for all of us. And, And Christians and Jews and Muslims unlike well not unlike all traditions do this but I feel like we particularly do this we shape our lives a huge part of our spiritual practice in these traditions is living in story you know we tell the stories we live into the stories year after year we're shaped by the story Um, story is so nicely put uh,
0: I'd say it's true probably of all human beings. Yeah. I think that's how our brains are wired, to tell stories and then live in the story that we tell. And um, uh, you may or may not be aware that the Muslim hajj, the annual pilgrimage, everyone who goes lives the story of Abraham and his son Ishmael and Hagar, and Hagar uh, as opposed to Jews who live the story of Abraham and his son Isaac and Sarah. And so. It's quite, yeah, we're, we're, we've got a lot in common uh, in that way, but living our
2: stories. Why don't you tell us more about what happens okay. as Lent comes around. Okay, we're so in we'll, Lent now. We'll, we'll move on through this, this um, sacred cycle here. So Christmas season leads into a, a window of what's called ordinary time, and after each major cycle, the Christmas cycle and then the sort of Easter cycle, There's a period that's traditionally called ordinary time. That's when you should go to Florida. Yeah, it's when you should go to Florida It's it's when it's so now you've lived through this sacred drama And now it has time to sort of settle out into your soul in the ordinariness of daily life You know now you take it you've lived through it and you embody it in daily life in the world while you're on vacation in the summer and the winter Um, So then Lent rolls around, you'll see some of these calendars um, the one on the bottom left after the time after Epiphany says Septuagissima that's the name for what it's often just sort of merged now but it's the sort of pre-Lenten season, the weeks leading up to Lent. Um, Lent is a 40-day window of time and of course, you know, in the biblical tradition, 40 is all over the place. The, the Gospels record Jesus, before his public ministry, going into the desert, into the wilderness for 40 days. He goes on a 40-day fast um, in preparation. Anybody know who else fasted for 40 days in the wilderness? Mm. Moses.
0: Moses, right. on the mountaintop, but also Elijah. Mm. And of course, Moses and Elijah are the two that appear to Jesus. The flood, yes. Yes, but I was just yeah. saying about, yeah, the flood yeah. Was, 40 day, was 40 days and 40 nights, but Elijah in particular uh, uh, runs away because Ahab wants to kill him, King Ahab, and uh, Jezebel, and uh, he runs away and he, uh, he eats a special meal that an angel gives to him, and then he subsists for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water until he comes to the holy mountain of God. And that's when he hears the still, small voice. So that's Elijah again. Right. Uh, Jesus' life patterned after the, biblical, the the Old Testament story.
2: So, so this season, so this cycle, it's both chronological and thematic. So it's not purely chronological because events in that epiphany season, um, some of those events that are observed actually happen after Jesus' fast in the wilderness. So that's the thematic bit. Those are themed. But this season... Of 40 days um, the Gospels have it placed after his baptism by John it says he was driven by the spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan Mm. so the sort of the spirit actually drives him into this period of testing and um, and and the the wonderful line it says and he was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him Mm. Um, so that is then in uh, mapped into Christian practice as a, a, a cycle of fasting. So Christians are supposed to fast for these 40 days of Lent. Um, Sundays are actually excluded from the fast during the season of Lent. If you include the Sundays, you end up with 46 days, um, because Sunday Sunday in the Christian year is always a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And so Sundays, you get to lighten your fast slightly. Um, before you dive back in for the next week of fasting. Uh, Where did
1: the ashes
2: come from? Oh, ashes. So, so the season of Lent begins with a, a, a solemn marking of each person with ashes. Some traditions, you're sprinkled with ashes on the head. Often, today, it's common you're actually marked with the sign of the cross with ashes on your forehead. Um, it comes from the practice in the Hebrew Scriptures of you know repenting with sackcloth and ashes and... Um, You know, so uh, Psalm, let me think, Psalm 103 is the psalm that has the line, remember um, that you are dust and to dust you shall return. (laughs) And so it's a solemn reminder of your mortality and that marks the season of Lent. So everyone comes on Ash Wednesday, uh, is marked with the ashes and the priest says to each person individually, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Mm. So that mm-hmm. sends you off into this period then of fasting and penitence, and it's intentionally a penitential season of, um, you know, um, clearing, clearing out, making amends, giving making an accounting, mm-hmm. giving things up. Um, so you're sort of stripping down, um, simplifying, and then all of this leads up to what's the sort of central Christian observance of Holy Weekend Easter. So this is the final week of Jesus' life, where he comes into Jerusalem. Um, the story has it that first he's lauded and praised and welcomed. Um, people shout Hosanna, and um, and quickly the the tides turn, and then he's arrested Thursday night after. So Thursday is the celebration of the Passover. He shares the meal with his disciples. And that's called something? Monday Thursday? It's called Monday Thursday, which comes from the Latin word mandatum, mandate. And it's because um, in that liturgy on Thursday nights, the gospel that's read is, uh, Jesus says, behold, I give you a new commandment, that you should love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, than that they lay their life down for their friends. Um, so that's the mandate of Monday, Monday, Monday Thursday. The mandate is the new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Right, and so then he actually ritually washes the feet of his disciples, and they, um, Peter, first says, "No, Lord, you know, I should wash your feet. My feet shouldn't be washed by you." And he says, "Unless you become a servant, you cannot be my disciple." Um, and so he sort of flips the tables and says, you know, to truly follow me, you must be a servant of others, washes their feet. And so that's ritually enacted on Maundy Thursday every year in the Christian tradition. Um, We all wash each other's feet. Um, And it's a very sort of intimate, uh, touching ceremony. Um, We take our shoes off and we have a basin of water and we each turn to the other and wash each other's feet. then... Uh, I should say, that's yeah. so, that's, that's beautiful. I, um, when
0: Abraham sees the three visitors outside his tent, he runs out to them and he washes, washes their, their feet. feet. Mm-hmm. They are the angels who have come mm-hmm. to
2: give him tidings. Yeah. So that leads into um, a, a night of vigil. And in many churches, um, Christians, t- sometimes people will actually have a sign-up sheet so that someone is in the church all night. You sign up for an hour. But it goes back to the story. So he goes out into the garden of Gethsemane to pray. Um, he knows that they're looking for him. That he's likely going to be arrested. And um, he asks the disciples to stay up with him and pray through the night. And of course they fall asleep. They fall asleep. And, um, and he comes and finds them asleep. And he says, could you not stay awake with me for one hour? And... Um, Now that's a deep spiritual teaching, (laughs) and so the practice has become to actually stay up in vigil all night. Um, He's arrested then, and uh, this is on Friday. This is Thursday night. Thursday night, and then on Friday, the Romans crucify him, and uh, usually it's called Good Friday. It's called Good Friday, right? Why
4: is it Good
2: Friday? Isn't that interesting? (laughs) You know, I mean, it's seen, of course, in the tradition that that. He becomes the Paschal Lamb, you know. He becomes ah, that right. our, our offerings are imperfect, we can never fully atone, and so he becomes the perfect, you know, oh, they, take, oh. they take the image of temple sacrifice, and as a way of giving meaning to the death of their rabbi, you interpret it within the framework of your culture, which is a culture of temple sacrifice. Oh. And so Jesus then becomes the the scriptures. The letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, it's very beautiful. It's all about interpreting the death of Jesus within the context of temple sacrifice. Um, And the the logic is that the high priest in the temple, year after year, offers the same sacrifice. But the sacrifice can never fully atone for our sins because we have to offer it again the next year and again the next year. Which is the Jewish tradition. Right. And so, no, 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 that is the Jewish that's the tradition. Jewish tradition. Oh, there is right. no that's ultimate true, right. sacrifice right. in and the Jewish tradition. But
5: well, was there Yom Kippur then? Yes, yes.
0: that's yeah. what he's referring yes. to. That's what I'm, yeah. That every year in Yom Kippur, the high priest goes to this incredible ritual of sacrifice, mm-hmm. and it's not enough.
2: That's what the he's saying. Feet. But for right. us, it's always been, yeah, we'll do it again next year. Right. <laughs> so the Christians, they say, well, Jesus then, in his death, has become our great high priest who makes a once-for-all sacrifice that atones for all the sins of the world. And, and is also thus, is not only the high priest, but is also the, sac- the offering. Right. And in, in the, in the, that's what it says. And in, this is the difference. Whereas the high priest offers the sacrifice of another life, Jesus has offered his own life, and there become thereby become the perfect sacrifice. And so the idea is that it. Talk
5: about living it. Right.
2: So, so the idea is then it, and it's actually very. Um, so it is a Good Friday.
0: Because this is what's going to allow humanity to be, continue to be saved, to be. This is the good news.
2: And it's it's actually very subversive because at this point the temple hasn't yet been destroyed, and so it sort of subverts the temples and the priesthoods' monarchy or, or monopoly on forgiveness. So it says it's done once for all. We don't need the temple institution. We don't need the priests. You know, it's taken care of. So it sort of subverts. Um, the need for mediation through the priesthood. Of course, then Christianity reinstitutes its own priesthood. But, but, um, so, but of course, you know, I, I said this to Carol the other day. I, I said, you know, of course I don't literally believe that God needed, you know, Jesus' blood to be able to forgive. And she goes, I don't know that you don't believe that. Um, you know, f- for me, within the Christian tradition, it's, it's a very powerful um, metaphor that grows out of the Jewish context of the early disciples. To think that you know, God literally needed the blood of a human life in order, order to forgive, you end up with a pretty barbaric uh, image of God. But to see this as a way of reading deep and profound meaning into the death of Jesus, and then to also see it as, um, as a statement about the mercy of God, that God steps in um, fulfills the sacrifice. Because Jesus is a manifestation of, of God. God. You know, the idea is that God offers God's self for humanity. The um, ultimate Jewish mother. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, so I just hunted it It's very t- powerful. Um, re, what? Yeah.
0: That was, I, I, I know I'm irreverent, but there's something about that that's really deep. It's not right? even
2: irreverent, though, because Jesus actually pictures himself this way in Luke's Gospel. At, on his way into Jerusalem... Um, he's quoted as saying, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that that um, kills the prophets and stones the messengers. How long I have, how how I have longed to gather you under my arms like a mother hen gathers her brood under her wings." Cool, yeah. cool. Um, but, been waiting. And of course, that's that's what all the prophets are always saying. Jerusalem is the city that stones the prophets, because the prophets are getting stoned again and right. again again. Right. Well, they're, they're, they're standing, standing up, up in, in the. the- town square saying, you're right. not following the commandments. So right. People don't
0: like that.
3: Since all the Gospels were, were really written after the destruction of the temple? Yes. So, obviously, here is Jesus being cr- crucified on, well, from John. Around Passover. And at that time, though, the, the, in at least historically in the minds of that, the temple was still doing the animal yes. things. So does that come into any of the theology of
2: so, so sh- sh- sure, the question is, the Gospels themselves are written post-destruction of the Temple in 70. The events happen pre-destruction of the Temple in 70. Um, so, the language used in the Gospels, how much of it is being shaped by the post-Temple situation? And certainly it is being shaped by that. Um, yeah.
3: Because he takes over what the temple no longer can do.
2: Right. The temple can no longer offer sacrifices. And so for Christians to theologize in such a way that Jesus, his sacrifice, has removed the need for the temple, it's actually a great comfort during this time of destruction. You know, there's no Mm -hmm. longer a temple.
0: Nice to put. I think that's a really important point. Um, Oh, Carol? Um, So where where does
5: original sin and Jesus dying for
2: our sins. Come into the picture? Um, You know, it comes in a little later in the the game. Um, The way the scriptures, the Christian scriptures interpret the death of Jesus is within the tradition of temple sacrifice, that we're offering sacrifice and atonement, and the idea becomes he becomes the perfect atoning sacrifice that ends all sacrifice. it makes me actually think of when Isaac is taken up and bound. And, and you know, the idea that that story was actually a story that was intentionally putting an end to the system of child sacrifice. The child sacrifice was practiced in the wider culture. And so this story is told as a way to actually end that once when for When God, the angel says, don't touch that lad. Right, right. Mo- right. Abraham is raising the knife and the angel says, stop. And in that moment, God... You know, One of the interpretations
0: of that story's purpose is to say, in our culture, we do not practice child
2: sacrifice. Right. So one way to read this story of Jesus' death is to say, enough of killing animals, enough of sacrifice. You know, In this story, God has put an end to all sacrifice. Um, uh, Joya? I was thinking, what is your mystical
1: interpretation of that, that this has become God and God's giving this? What? is the mystical the wisdom tradition's
2: understanding of that moment? Of that yeah. moment? Yeah. Of that moment. Uh, she, okay. She's asking what's, she'll, she'll, he'll repeat what's the sort of mystical understanding in Christianity of that moment of sacrifice. Um, one of the interesting things that the New Testament does, uh, in the book of Revelation, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in history, and time, is described as the sacrifice that happened from the foundation of the world. Ah, uh. So this sacrifice, um, and then the, the language is that, that um, this mystery has been hidden throughout the ages, Paul says, and then at last revealed in Jesus. And so it's not that the sacrifice happens in history at that moment, it's that God offered this sacrifice of God's self in creation from the foundation of the world, that God's own self-sacrifice is actually what gives birth to creation. Yeah, yeah. That, and and then that sacrifice is sacramentalized, is revealed, is 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 manifested in the death of Jesus in time and history. Uh-huh. You know, it's we see it. We see what God has been doing from the foundation of the world. God has been giving God's self in sacrifice.
6: Again in human
2: form. Right. Um, yes. So that's that's a sort of mystical read on it, you know. And it actually removes what a lot of Protestant theology, or a lot of Christian theology, has this sort of transactional understanding of the atonement, that a debt was paid to God, or a debt was paid to the devil, or whatever the case is, that a transaction happens. Um, in this read, it's not a transaction. It's actually a disclosure of the nature of God that's been embedded in creation from the uh, very beginning. So that's also, in rabbinic,
0: it, contem- it, the understanding of repentance the power of returning to oneness with God, that's what repentance means in its biggest sense, not just I'm sorry or, you know, it's repenting is the, in Hebrew, teshuva, which is the capacity to return to God, is understood in rabbinic theology and in Jewish theology ever since as having been crea- being pre-existing creation. In other words, it's like part the, the Torah
2: pre-existed creation. Torah,
0: the Torah is the blueprint of creation, and this capacity to return pre-exists the physical creation. Which is a way of saying, outside of time and space, this is a spiritual description that inherent in God's self and the universe's self is that we will be one with God again, right? That that return is not is not conditional. Uh, What's conditional is our ability to um, keep messing up on that. But that means we're not following God's plan. God's plan for the universe in Jewish understanding is that we will all return to the oneness of God. And uh, that's what the prophets say over and over again. Um, so it, I think that's comparable to, to yeah. what you were describing.
1: Matthew? Are you answering now the question
2: about original sin? Oh, so to follow on with that question, so Carol asked about original sin. Um, it's it's a concept that develops uh, in the tradition and really gets sort of um, unfolded more fully by St. Augustine. Uh, when and did he live? And we'll Augustine is... Four, fifth, fourth? Fifth, fifth century. Fourth? Fifth. I was going to say fourth. Fifth? Okay, fifth century, so the 400s he lived. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It's sort of inchoate in the Christian scriptures, but not fully developed with the idea that um, well it's psalm fifty one you know i was I was born sinful from my mother 's womb, and so this idea that that somehow uh, there is inherent in the human condition uh, a weakness, a turning to that which we would, you know, best not turn to, and so the idea is um, that that's, you know, sort of passed on through the human family, it's a part of, it's a condition of embodiment in a human life, that we're, we we come with an ego intact from day one pretty much, you know, Um, which in a way is true, you know, we talk about babies being clean slates, but they're actually the most egoic little creatures on the planet, you know me 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 <laughs> the only thing um, <laughs> uh, right and and in a way you could see uh, original sin uh, as our evolutionary baggage that we've acquired through survival of the fittest instinct you know and all of that over the course of <laughs> a long <laughs> time
3: theike the in ra. Jewish thought yes the evil inclination yeah. that to demand food to demand a job to make mm-hmm. a living is We don't think of it as evil, but it's it's worded that way. Right. Right.
2: So this is one way that the Christian tradition then um, interprets Jesus' death on the cross: is that that because we have this inherent sinfulness, um, we can't offer a perfect sacrifice, and so Jesus becomes the perfect sacrifice.
0: You know. So what's your take on original sin now, as a 21st century pastor?
2: But well, well, just like I said, it's it's our evolutionary baggage. We we're born with egos, and they harden over the course of our lives. And we can learn to soften them and open our hearts and become less egoic and more compassionate. Um, but there is an impulse in us um, that is self-centered, uh, and in, in a sense, that's you know, that could be seen as original sin. I think original sin is a psychologically damaging doctrine if it's not paired at the same time with original blessing that were created in the imago Dei, in the image of God. And so the most foundational identity in the human being is the image of God, the divine image. Um, But on our journey through time, we develop pretty nasty egos and we mar over and cover over the image of God. but it's not an either or, you know. Often it's. I, I feel like we want to go say, well, we're just born perfect and pure and clean. I used to think that to like kids. Yeah, <laughs> we're not. We're not. So I see it as an acknowledgement of, of that dual nature, and you and know, within us. As well. well, and yes, yeah. Great. Um, so what? I, oh, uh, Martha.
1: Mm-hmm. I just want to ask since the go excel seems so related to survival. Mm-hmm. Um. Why the emphasis on poverty immediately in the Jesus story, and how much of a departure is that from the the Jewish
0: tradition? Oh, well, the Jewish tradition is crystal clear, and I've taught about this a lot, that those who have no protector, the poor, the stranger, the widow, and the orphan, God is their protector. And if you don't protect them, then God is going to see to it that you pay for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Judaism, just inherent is that uh, the, 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 the defenseless must be defended. That is God's will. So um, Jesus, but, yeah?
1: But that but Jesus pover- is also a person of power. I mean, it is of a little poverty. bit it, yeah. of, pover- of, of power and in of poverty. poverty, and that those two yeah. are so intricately linked in his personhood. I feel like that's a little different than saying the community must support the widow and the stranger, whereas, you know, he's actually being part of his uh, ascension aspect is that he's, he is poor.
2: There is a, so, so in the Christian tradition, what are called the evangelical councils, um, C-O-U-N-S-E-L-S, councils, um, you know, I'm counseling you to do this, not council as a gathering. Evangelical, evangelical meaning from the evangelion, from the gospel. The gospel councils, the gospel commands, um, they're still preserved in monastic tradition as the three vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Um, and these traditionally are the councils that are given to all Christians. Um, poverty uh, mm-hmm. understood as, um, as in a way, we could say holy poverty, uh, not to be confused with unholy poverty, you know, the conditions, societal conditions that Create of situations of abject poverty, mm-hmm. but holy simplicity, um, that someone walking a Christian path is called to a life of holy poverty, of not having more than you need, of living simply, um, and in the early church, holding possessions in common. Uh, chastity was understood for those called to a celibate vocation, a celibacy, for those called to a, a, a marital relationship as uh, marital fidelity, Both of those are expressions of chastity, so you could say it's responsible sexuality. Um, And then the third, obedience, uh, which comes from Latin root, obedir, which means to listen. As in shamas, huh? Yeah, listen. So in a way, it's um, not sort of groveling obedience, but listening uh, to the guidance of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, uh, guidance that's found within the community... Evidence that's found within Scripture. If you're in a monastic community, of course, you know the wisdom that comes from your superiors. But those three—they um, were traditionally enjoined on Christians, and poverty was one of them. Um, and but it is a call to uh, living. It's also a call to detached living in a way, living uh, detached from possessions. That you hold them lightly. If they come, they go. You're not clinging to them. Um, but there there there's a thread there a focus on I, poverty simplicity this
0: is interesting i think it's safe to say that this is this is a place where paths diverged. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. it's not that judaism uh, uh doesn't pride those values right. but it doesn't turn them into a um like a cent- the centerpiece. The centerpiece and or, it's understood Would you say that that's, uh... I was just thinking how yeah.
5: the, matri- the patriarchs are all so rich yeah. You know, yeah and it's very important that they are right yeah how many think how many people they have and how many animals they have and all
2: that. yeah and 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 it's um you know the evangelical councils as they were called they weren't commanded of all Christians Um, So, they were, they're sort of suggested guidelines. And of course, Christians have had strange relationships with wealth throughout the centuries, and yeah, Barbara.
6: Going back to original sin. Speak a little louder, Barbara. Original sin, in some ways, is like going astray. And when you said about the Jewish, even from the foundations before the world, it's a way of reconciling, of maybe repairing, or something of mm-hmm. reconnecting because we've been estranged, or we feel we have been. We've left the garden. We, we're no longer united. And then there's also that whole purity. All of those things can be on some level. Poverty is like an undivided mm-hmm. heart. It's like that emptiness, yes. that openness, and chastity is just just a clarity of you know focus that your so, prime. Focus
0: is God, you know. So outer expressions right. of inner
2: inner intent. And, right. right. And they uh-huh. are essentially inner inner realities or inner intentions. And you see a shift in the in the gospel language. Um, in St. Luke's gospel, Jesus says, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of, of God. In Matthew it's blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, and oh. so, you know, the idea is perhaps that initially Jesus was actually talking about poor people, you know, the poor, the oppressed, the downtrodden. Don't, don't but not bless this, me
3: so much with this poverty. <laughs> yeah,
2: but then as the tradition moves out and suddenly you've got Christians who aren't so poor, you know, you've got a well, how does, so it becomes poverty of spirit. And then it becomes spiritualized as that inner detachment, that inner, uh, who, who raised their hand? Um, Gail had her hand up, uh, Michael also, and Jerome. Hold on,
0: Jerome. <laughs> So, okay. Michael was first. Okay.
7: so there seems to be a general mechanism at the root of all creation which is that there's a fullness which gets localized into a part and the part both remembers its um, prior fullness and that's the redemptive movement it's mm-hmm. remember where we come from mm-hmm. to keep in mind the oneness of, of creation and creator but there's this other movement which is the movement toward this instrument we're given which is a mortal instrument we become attached to it, and our attachment drives us into so-called sin because we don't recognize the limitations of our identity in that form. And we come from a greater place, mm-hmm. so there's always this tension going on. If God creates out of Himself, Herself, with a great so, It's for the sake of ultimately revealing Self as well. So this movement is movement of contraction and expansion.
2: S- say for others, could everyone hear Mikhail? No. We know. Um, it, 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 it's tsum though. Will you say? I'll say, I'll say, just <laughs> so I can do it loud. In Jewish
0: mysticism, tsum is the action that God must take in, in basically containing God's energy to make space for a new creation uh, and then pours the light into that creation. I apologize. I just,
4: uh,
7: no, but then the, the dynamic in the individual is a remembrance of this this transcendental... Original unity. Yeah, the original unity. Right. So we're with the yearning is for the original source, but meanwhile, we're given these instruments to play in the world. Mm-hmm. And in some sense, the Jewish emphasis is, remember that it all, God also manifests as the presence in this physical world. In the world. And the fullness right. of living that life is a fulfillment of God's plan in some way. Meanwhile, if we get too attached to the world, mm-hmm. we, have, we need the doctrine of transcendence, which says, this is not all there is. Mm-hmm. You know, there is, in fact, a redemptive place beyond your body
2: consciousness. Well, and that's, you know, in in the church year, and I imagine the Jewish year, in the church year, the cycle is a cycle of of both feasts and fasts, and the idea there is that both are good in rhythm and balance, and that in uh, periods of fasting, like the season of Lent, we're stripping away, we're letting go of our attachment, we're simplifying. and we're learning about the immediacy of God's presence. You know, we don't need it mediated through all these things that actually obscure, obstruct the direct um, presence of God. So Lent strips all that away. But then we enter into a season of feasting and Eastertide. And so then it's celebratory and you have dessert and you eat meat and it all sort of comes back. And then you discover God is loving us through these things too. You know, and it's not either or. But to truly, you know, find God in the manifest, sometimes you also have to strip away and and celebrate the unmanifest, the simple. But that that God is in both movements, and that the liturgical year um, moves us in and out of both both of those. Uh, thank you, thank you, Gail. What did you want to share? Uh,
0: uh, hmm? Jerome.
1: Uh, evangelicals are very much in the news these days. Everybody's going for the. Evangelical vote. I'm not. All oh, right.
0: You're <laughs> <I mean, there's laughs> not going
1: to get it. The, uh, <laughs> how, does, how, does that, how does their belief today compare with what they used to be? And are they members of a, of a particular Christian sect
2: or
0: on a... Jer- Jerome, yeah. can we talk about this after class? Can you, because that, that takes us too far afield.
2: Yeah, that'll take us really far afield, but too that's far. really interesting, and we should, let's touch base about, right, about, okay. about evangelical okay. Christian identity, yeah. But we're, we haven't gotten to, to uh,
0: past Good Friday yet, so I just want to <laughs> make sure. Right, we've
2: not even Rude. touched the Jewish year. Well, we'll, we'll do the
0: Jewish year next week. Okay. okay. Well, two, two, weeks. Weeks. two weeks. In two weeks, thank you. Thank you. Talk louder if you can. Is
5: why monasticism began and mm-hmm. Let's
2: take that so, digression. So let's, so let's... Well, let's hold, let's hold off on, on that. I do want to get to monasticism. Let's, let's actually cycle on through the year here, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go towards the monastic thing, because a lot of people have been asking. Um, so to finish up the, the cycle of the year, um, the season of Lent is this preparatory season for Holy Week and then the celebration of Easter. Um Easter, so let's see. So Good Friday, the death of Jesus, and then the following day is called Holy Saturday. And this is essentially the day when God is dead, you know? The the sacramental presence of God mediated through Jesus is gone. Um and so it's yeah, Barbara. God is actually
6: our Jesus is going even to to hell
2: right so in the in the tradition yeah in the wider tradition the idea is that so as you know in the jewish tradition um originally there's no concept of sort of uh, heaven hell you know all divine of this. punishment right. after death there's just shale there's just hades there's Sheol, the grave it's just sort of the underworld and everyone goes there and we're all dead together um, christianity takes this and says, "Yeah, that was the case. There was Sheol. There was Hades. There was the underworld, and um, all the patriarchs and prophets, and they're all there. And then what happens in the sort of expanded mythology is that when Jesus dies, he descends into the realm of the dead, huh. and he breaks open the gates. Really, and um, and and takes everyone into the into the into paradise, into what." The Gospel sometimes refers to as the bosom of Abraham. Um, Good song. Yeah. So, uh, so that idea that, that Jesus descends into, and then it's used in the tradition in all kinds of ways, but that Jesus descends into, into hell, into death, into you know, the furthest, darkest point of human reality that uh-huh. the presence of God is it's it's like Psalm 139, you know, right? How can I how can I flee from your presence? If I, you know, take the wings of the morning, if I descend into the grave, you are there. So this is sort of that being acted out that Jesus has descended even to the darkest and that and has planted the Christ light there at the depths of reality. Wow. Wow. Um, so what's the feeling tone of
0: Holy Saturday?
2: Holy Saturday is it's the one day a year so you know you have the eternal light burning? Yeah. It's the one day of year we put that out. You put out your eternal light. Because Here. the light in, the, in Christian churches is actually there to mark the presence of Christ in the tabernacle. So consecrated bread and wine are reserved in the tabernacle year-round. On, on Good Friday, we actually open the tabernacle and consume the remaining bread and wine. And Put out the light. Wow. Because the sacramental mediation of God's presence through Jesus, it's gone now. He's dead. Um, And so Holy Saturday is a very dark day. Um, And you can't celebrate the Eucharist. Christians can celebrate the Eucharist, um, the ritual bread and wine, any day of the year except this one day. You can't make Eucharist on Holy Saturday. Um, So even our central sacrament is taken away. Wow. Uh, mm-hmm. then we prepare for the great vigil of Easter which happens in the dark at night on Saturday night and we recount the whole story of creation we have the readings of, from Genesis we have the readings about the Passover the exodus from Egypt leading all the way up oh, to boy. the Passover I know, of, Epic. of Jesus of Epic. The, right? so we tell the whole the whole story from the beginning up to um, this new you know Passover in Jesus and then the first proclamation of Alleluia Christ is risen is shouted and the candles are all lit and is that like at sunrise or is that well it, there's a tradition to do it in the dark at night uh-huh. Saturday night sometimes there's a sunrise vigil and it's done then okay um, so, I'm sorry, I did interrupt, so hallelujah, you light right, the candles. Right, right, you make Eucharist, you reserve the sacrament in the tabernacle, you light the the candle back. Yeah.
1: And you make the holy, you consecrate the holy water for the year, right?
2: Well, uh, holy water can be <clears throat> consecrated all through the year, but, they're, they're,
1: but there... But isn't there a special ritual on... Maybe there was in your church, yeah.
2: So, often... The great vigil of Easter that night um, is when baptisms traditionally happened in the Christian church, and so you were prepared as a catechumen, um, you went through the catechumenate through a sort of education into the mysteries of the faith that really heightened in the 40 days of Lent. That was the period of preparation for baptism, and so water would have been blessed, and baptism would have happened, and new members would have been welcomed into the into the body of the faithful, and um, and for the first time they would have actually been welcomed to the table then. So in the early church, the, the liturgy, there's the liturgy of the word, which has the scripture readings and a sermon, and then the liturgy of the table. And early on, everyone who hadn't been baptized was dismissed following the liturgy of the word, because you weren't yet prepared to enter into Holy Eucharist. Uh-huh. And so then after you were baptized at the Easter vigil, then you were welcomed.
0: So second. it's like it's like an incredible new beginning, and it, that's what it's all about. It's rebirth. It's an sure, sure. it's the new year. I mean, it's, it's what it sounds like to me.
2: It's the new creation. It's that it is new that this is the the initiation of the new creation that God is recreating the world, beginning now. You know. <sighs> And, and so bec- <laughs> <laughs> That's pagan. Um, um yeah, so she she didn't said, She said no. Um, so this is. So this is. H- how? So right, that night
4: that you're describing,
3: when this is in
2: churches all over, the same
3: thing is being said, or is it up to the
2: leader? In, it's, in churches all over, the same thing more or less is being said. Now, liturgy will d- differ a little from, say, an Episcopal Church, to Roman Catholic Church, to Orthodox Church, but it's going to be remarkably similar. I think Passover's. It's written. It's, written. it's not. It's written. It's not ad lib. Right. No. No. It's written. It's a set liturgy with set scripture readings. Everyone's. But there are the many scripture. different
0: kinds of Christians. Right. So I think Passover's a good analogy. At Passover Seder's everywhere. It's all the same night. Everybody's. But the liturgies vary. But uh, different kinds of Jews are telling the story in slightly different ways, but we're still drinking the four cups, we're still, you know, so it's
2: Passover, you know, you know so I think that's an appropriate analogy, Helen. And then um, churches often will have a celebratory Sunday morning Eucharist as well, and sometimes people will go just to the night vigil, either one counts as your are So wait, I want to understand something. Yeah. So Easter Sunday starts at midnight, is that So Well, not min- it starts that night. So in, in the Christian tradition, feasts began with first vespers, and this leads into the daily cycle. So there's a daily cycle of prayer. Um, the simplest version of it is morning prayer and evening prayer, but then there are several other smaller times of prayer. But evening prayer... The day before a feast is actually the beginning of the feast. So you celebrate. Okay, what does that remind you of? Arab, it's, I, right, That's yeah. how Jewish holidays work, and right? It's, and it's, you know, it's also creation. There was evening and morning the first day, yeah. not morning and you know, evening. Right. Which is, which is, the, which is, the, which is <laughs> the Jewish
0: homiletic about why right. our day starts at sundown and right. why all Jewish holidays, because the day begins at sundown, Sabbath begins at Friday at sundown. It doesn't <laughs> begin Friday night. Right. That's Sabbath. Right? And it's very hard for us who are used to, like I think of Easter Sunday, Sunday. But for Jews, the Jewish holidays all are from sundown to sundown.
2: And that's the same with Christian holidays. All Christian holidays begin (laughs) um, vespers with evensong. Vespers, evening prayer, the night before the day. Now, where that's mostly preserved is in Christian monastic communities. In um, sort of secular Christian homes, um, secular time has sort of trumped the traditional rhythms, right? Same and have, with us. It's eroded the traditional rhythms, and so people don't follow it in the same way. Um, but but you'll still see it in some parish churches, and certainly in all monastic communities. Evening, the night before begins the holiday.
3: Yeah. It was interesting that you said the Eucharist, of course, is that's made holy by the priests. By, the,
2: well, by the people, the priest presides on behalf of the whole congregation. Right. But right? without
3: the priest, it's not right, right. Whereas um, holy water, just like the um, suspension of the lamp, yes. if it's there, I could see them saying, that's no longer holy water, and we now have to reconsecrate the water at the end of this day of Holy Saturday.
2: Right, right, well and water again is blessed all throughout the year. Like every Sunday we put fresh water in the font and I bless it And you don't have
3: to be there, people can use it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it may be that maybe that's where your thing came from that the holy water on Holy Saturday was no longer blessed because. Oh sure,
2: because everything's been stripped away on Holy Saturday. And on Monday, Thursday actually, um, before you enter that vigil, the whole church is stripped bare. You take you take everything out, the candlesticks off the altar, and you actually ritually scrub the altar. Everything's stripped away um, for good Friday. Yeah, mm-hmm. the cross is covered even. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay, we have
0: an al- analogs to that yeah. in our yeah. tradition, right. Right. but the biggest the biggest analogies are between Passover and Easter practice, oh. where just the fact that uh, you finish all the old right. wine and That's bread. Um, is right out of the Passover tradition, where you get all that out so that you can begin
2: again. Uh, right, and end. so we do that, Christ our Passover, and that's what's said at every Eucharist, Christ our Passover, is when the bread is broken, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, and the congregation responds, therefore let us keep the feast. Um, huh. So it is, on Good Friday, it's the actual enactment of the Passover, and everything's consumed. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Okay, do you want to, were you leading so we into gotta, more on monasticism? We well, yeah, but let's finish the year. What time is it? Uh, we have nine okay, minutes. So let's, let's But we'll be back in two weeks, and so, I will, will continue. You know, one thing uh, someone mentioned the other day was that Christians replaced the Sabbath with Sunday. And I don't remember who said that, but the, the day had been changed. Yes. And it's actually not that the day has been changed. The Sabbath is still Saturday. But worship is offered on Sunday in honor of the resurrection of Jesus, which becomes oh. the Lord's day. And so that's why sat- Sunday became the chief day of worship. But I, the prayer that we pray in, the, in our prayer book on, um, on Saturdays, I got to thinking about this because I thought we didn't really do away with it. That, this is why we have a two-day weekend in the Western world. Because really? both are observed. You know?
0: I thought that was Union Act. I thought that was the so Union Maybe that's
2: unions too. But it's it's you know both <laughs> no, are being observed. Is. When when they did when did Saturday when did Saturday did Saturday only come in with unions?
0: Yeah. My my grandfather had to work in his store every Saturday and couldn't wait to sell the store so he could start going to synagogue
2: again. So the prayer offered on Saturdays.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: So this is the morning prayer offered on Saturdays. Almighty God, who who after the creation of the world rested from all your works and sanctified a day of rest for all your creatures, grant that we, putting away all earthly anxieties, may be duly prepared for the service of your sanctuary and that our rest here upon earth may be a preparation for the eternal rest promised to your people in heaven. And so Saturday is the day of rest and preparation for our service in God's sanctuary on Sunday. Wow! Isn't that anyway? I just I never knew. Yeah, yeah. But in Protestant traditions, it really did get merged, and you get a lot of sort uh, of Protestants who who um, you know, are really picky about not working on Saturday, on Sunday. You know, all the stores closed. Right, but,
0: that's what we grew up with. Yeah, yeah. With yeah, the you know. blue laws, and Sunday was right. the Sabbath. Uh, I political, political, political too. Well, all I knew, I didn't know I was a kid, but all I knew was Sunday was the Sabbath. And stores were all closed, and uh, that was that.
2: That's the
4: Puritans.
2: I think think that is the Puritans. And I think traditionally, it was, Saturday was the traditional Sabbath, and Sunday was the Lord's Day, the Lord being Jesus, the Lord Jesus who was raised on Sunday. But I just, that popped into my head that maybe the, but I think they have been conflated in popular Christian practice. It
3: might have been Diane that
2: question. Yeah. Um, so to do a quick final tour of the year here. OK, good idea. So Easter celebrates the ongoing life of Jesus in the community. He has died. He has risen. And And, get to and then there's a, a window of time where Jesus, uh, in, in the stories, he actually continues his teaching with the disciples during this resurrection window. And then there's... Jesus has been resurrected and is appearing. For for 40 days, I suppose. 49. 49. So it's 50 50 days, actually, leading up to... No, it's 40 days, and then there are the 10 days of ascension tide. Oh. Okay, so 40 days, and then Jesus ascends. Um, The risen, appearing presence of him disappears. He's gone. Um, You know, the popular... Old pictures of it is they're looking up and his feet are going into a cloud uh, but you know the idea is that he has now moved on to a subtler plane of reality he's not visible to us anymore and then what comes is a 10-day window called ascension tide and this is this really wonderful thin time in the christian year um, where and, and before jesus goes he, he promises that the holy spirit um, he uses the word paraclete, translated sometimes as a comforter, but that the Holy Spirit will come, uh, will be their guide, and will continue to lead them into all truth. Uh, the wonderful line in John's Gospel, there are truths that you cannot bear to hear now, but the Holy Spirit will come and will continue to lead you into all truth. So, uh, So that's been promised, but it hasn't happened. So he's gone, and then there's ten days where... Uh, the Acts of the Apostles, and uh, recounts that they're gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem in prayer. So they're in prayer and fasting these ten days, and they're basically sort of acclimatizing to the absence of the presence of Jesus as they've they've known it. They've sort of been attached to a certain form, and they have to let go of that and open to the formless in a way. And then after they've been in this deep prayer for ten days, and it describes that Mary Magdalene is there, Mary the mother of Jesus is there, all the men and women disciples gathered. Uh, And then on the 10th day it says, when they were all in one mind and of one accord, or sometimes it's translated of one heart and one mind, that the Spirit um, rushed through the room, uh, moved through them like a, a, a rushing wind, a rushing mighty wind or a violent wind, and then they look and they see tongues of fire resting on each other's heads. And so it's almost like after these 10 days of deep prayer, they've crossed some collective threshold together and the Spirit is poured out as Jesus had promised. But it's not the
0: vision of Jesus, it's the Spirit itself on each of their heads. It's the Spirit
2: itself now on each of them. Okay,
0: so a transformation from the risen Jesus over the course of these 50 days. Right, sort of an attenuation happens. An attenuation that then it it all comes pouring back in Mm -hmm. in a new... And internalized in a new
2: and internalized way, and then they go out to preach. So this is their commissioning, and so this is the and the day is the festival of Shavuot, Pentecost. Pentecost. So they go out now, sort of charged with you know power to to share the message that they bear, and the story is that they as they're gathered, they begin preaching, and uh, the text says that gathered there for Shavuot. There were Parthians, and Medes, and Persians, and Elamites, and Mesopotamians, and Romans, and, you know, and it goes on and on and on, basically saying the whole known world is gathered. And as they begin speaking, everyone understands them in their own language. Um, and it's not that everyone understands them uh, in the same language. It's that everyone understands in their own language. So it's this beautiful image of a new unity and diversity. OK. So that's
0: fantastic. And before we run out of time, we'll continue in two weeks, but you need to know so what's happening on the same template in the Jewish year? Some of us know about this. From the liberation at Passover, which is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of the mm-hmm. transformation of a slave people into a free people. They travel for seven forty-nine days mm-hmm. to the holy mountain, Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. And on the 50th day, God speaks to the entire people. And the primary midrashim about that are that everyone understood. God's, God's um, uh, message in the language and in the way that they were able. So this is a direct uh, analog to the Jewish midrash, which is probably
2: contemporaneous. Yeah, and it, it's seen in the Christian tradition as the reversal of Babel. So at the Tower of Babel, we're scattered into a diversity of languages and cultures, and we no longer understand each other. And at this point, the whole known world comes back together. And suddenly, we understand each other without erasing our diversity in the process. Um, yes, that's right. That's, that's and, and so that day is marked in the Christian year as it's sometimes called the birthday of the church. This is when it, it begins. You know, up till now we've been living the life of Jesus, wow. and now we're living the life of the church. Wow! And then you go into ordinary time for a long time. Right. So half of the year we're just out in the world. You know, we've, we're living. I mean, you're still going to church every Sunday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the sacred cycle. Right, so so there's Pentecost. The following Sunday is Trinity Sunday, which sort of celebrates the mystery of the Holy Trinity, and then it moves into um, all of these weeks after Pentecost. Wow. wow. And then we, it moves into, again, the, the final Sunday of the Christian year is called um, Christ the King, or the reign of Christ, and it's sort of a vision of, you know, Jesus reigning in eternity. It's sort of like the, the you know, the veil is removed, and you see... And, and when does that happen? It's the final Sunday of the year that ends the cycle. And you mean then, right before Advent? Right. right, the Sunday before the first Sunday of Advent oh. is, is the Feast of Christ the King. And then you
0: start all over again.
2: And then you enter into the, the time of preparation again, and you go
0: again. Yeah. Wow, cool. Okay, so two weeks from now, I'm gonna give a similar tour, uh, and you'll see a ton of fascinating okay. parallels, but you'll also see the differences. Um, and now it's uh, 2 o'clock. So uh, Matthew, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, thank
2: you all. And, and, and I, I hope, if we have time, we may not have time next time, but that we can, in addition, we can also yes. look at our, our daily cycle, which, because okay. the daily cycle ties into a weekly cycle, which then ties into the annual cycle. I think we can do that.
0: Um, thank
2: you, everyone. Thank you See you in uh, two weeks. Don't two come weeks. here next week. Oh, and I'm going to be... We'll come here, but we oh, won't be doing I, this. and
0: I guess I will say, so I am planning to take a hike in the Galilee. There's a famous, a very popular hike in the Galilee called the Sea to Sea Hike. It starts in the Mediterranean, up north of, uh, way up north, near the Lebanese border, climbs up a valley called Nahal Kse up to Mount Meron, which is the highest point in uh, the Galilee, and then goes down another valley called Nahal Amud, and comes out at uh, the Sea of Galilee, at Dinosar, which is 600 feet both, below the sea level. So um, I'm going to walk from sea to sea, which, uh, uh, God willing, and, and uh, I'll tell you a little about it. I'll write about it when I get back, so I wanted you to know. That's why I won't be here after Sunday. I'm here this weekend, but on Sunday I'm going away for a week.
2: And I should promise to say something about monasticism next time because we still. Well, oh, you know. kind of you kind of leaned into it a little. We leaned into it, yeah. Well, yeah, but we didn't get into what that vocation is and also, you know, why it
1: is. We're not talking about um, the apocalypse and all that stuff. Sure. Book of Revelation. Oh,
2: oh, yeah. That, that, that. that stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>